Mass incarceration in the U.S. is the great tsunami that has ripped apart families and destroyed communities. At the epicenter of this destruction are the children of those incarcerated. My name is Ebony Underwood. I am the founder CEO of We Got Us Now. We Got Us Now is the first of its kind, national, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization built by, led by, and about children and young adults who have been impacted by parental incarceration. These are our stories. When you get arrested on federal drug charges, the first thing they do is send you as far away from your family as they possibly can. I remember, boom, on the ground, on the ground, on the ground. I saw flashlights in my face. I don't remember if I cried. That night was the last night that I saw him. For the first five years, we only got to see my father one time. We would talk on the phone and, how's everything, are you good? I hid that I was running from some of the project kids. Surviving in the Bronx was super tricky, and I needed dad in a lot of ways to be out there to just help me navigate it. A lot of the folks that I befriended were single-parent households, and I tend to gravitate towards those kids because I knew they had the same story as I did. Mom never made it like your father made this decision, he left you behind. It didn't really get to me until you start to look at people posting pictures of their dad, talking about moments with their dad, and all the minor in the prison. Two years ago, a good friend of mine was running some races and asked me to come out and just document a little bit of it for him. And it, it piqued my curiosity. So I started to talk to my dad about it. I said, when I run the marathon, I'm gonna run it for him. Because I know if he was out here, it would probably be the thing that we would do together. He's been like a steady hand for 32 years, making sure that his mind and body are all in sync. I'm gonna run for you. I'm gonna be your legs outside of the prison. I'm gonna run around the city that we came from. And I'm gonna run all 26 miles for you. The name of the film is? Uh, run For His Life. Hmm. I decided I was gonna run it for him, like I said, Probably two years ago, I think my first race was December 10th, 2016. Mm. That first race was god-awful. If any of you are out here trying to run anything and doing it in a pair of Air Max. Oh, no. Lord. Because I definitely almost got hurt myself out there. But it, it carried me through it. I remember literally in the race and talking. It was like, yo, you're running in the free world. Are you really going to stop? Wow. And it was it was bugged out, and I, I didn't, you know. But I, I, as I'm laughing around Central Park, I'm I'm talking to him mm. and asking for strength. And mm. I didn't I didn't know what to do because it was my first race. I had no real formal training, but I just I knew I just had to finish, and that really happened. So what happened when you actually told your dad that you were running this race? Well, my mom thinks I'm crazy. So she's like, you're running a marathon? What are you, nuts? And I'm like, ma, yeah, I'm going to run it for dad. She's like, oh, okay. So, you know, in one ear, out the other, she's cooking. And <laughs> all through 2017, when you run it and you don't, you know, you go through the program, you have to run nine races. 
to qualify and then volunteer with one effort. Once I qualified, I'm like, I qualified for the 2018 marathon. I'm really going to run it. So beginning of the year, I tell him, like, officially as I'm on the visit, he's like, really, son? I'm like, yeah. I remember one time when he was in, I think, Lewisburg. Um, it's one of the prisons in Pennsylvania, Fed. He's like, yeah, I'm running like five, six miles a day. And I'm like, what? And at this point, I'm not even thinking about running. I'm still like on the basketball court, barely. Can I tell you that my dad told me that they were running together when they were in I the facility? It. I, I believe it. I was like, it. wow. <laughs> I believe it. And my dad is 69 years old now. So we're talking like old man. He doesn't run as much uh, according to what he says. Now, nah, I don't like it, son. It makes me too skinny. But, <laughs> you know, um, he still does his two to three miles every other day. But he's kind of worked in meditation and yoga and Pilates. And now he's pushing me to do that. Mm. Um, I started meditating recently. It really is good. It is. Yeah, yeah. Shutting your phone off. Like, I, I spend days now, like, I go home and I'll throw my phone in the backpack and leave it in the other room. And I'll be too lazy to get in. I'll just leave it there. When did you first publicly share that um, your father was incarcerated? Because you know we talk about the, sh the shame and the stigma Ooh. that um, surrounds um, that. When did you first publicly share? I'm not really the, the therapist type of guy. I know it's good, but I'm not a big subscriber to going to an office to somebody who's sitting there waiting for me to dump their problems. Mm. So I like to do my things like conversational. So right. I may meet a random and we just start talking about life and be like, hey, did you know? And then we'll just start talking about it. And as I got older, I started to become more comfortable with my reality mm. that, you know, he was lock, locked up. When you're a teen, and one of the things that these kids are impacted by is you're not really taught any kind of way to deal with this. The fallout is single-parent household, you either raised by your mom, you raised by your grandma. When you're in that transitional age of developing friends in junior high school and you start to get your circles together, I remember being in the store and having to wait till my friends leave so I could use the food stamps. Mm. I'm not, I can't have that conversation like, yo, I know y'all got money, but I'm finna use this right here. Yeah. You know, you just don't know how to, how to really act. Unless you're with people who are like you, who are also using that EBT card, you don't really want to have that conversation. So as I got older and dealing with the reality, like, you know, this is a part of my life and this is a part of my story, I just became okay with it. So you started to tell people? Not like openly, like, hey, look, but some of my friends that'll, if they're going through something and, I, and I'm helping them and I'm being a good listener at the time, I would say, well, did you know? Because sometimes people don't want to burden you with their stuff and they just, they're like, oh, you know, you may not know what I'm talking about. And I go, well, you wouldn't believe. Yeah. My dad's been in jail since I was six years old and I've been homeless twice and I grew up on welfare and... I'm still standing here in front of you. That's right. Can you talk about some of the, the difficulty and like the differences um, in having a father that's incarcerated, you know, as a child and as a teen and then as, a, as an adult? Like, what do you see the difficulty mm. and the differences? My dad got locked up. I still remember the day, like I described you were in the there? video. Uh, I, I just remember he couldn't pick me up from school that day. Mm. It was June 18th, 1986, three days before my sixth birthday. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't come get me. Wow. Somebody else showed up. And he was all about that. Like, he'll drop everything he was doing to come get me from school. So and you that, knew something was wrong? I didn't know then. I just, you know, oh, no big deal. My mom's here. Okay. And then, you know. But um, when they busted in the door initially when, I guess, you know, the feds kind of caught up, um, it was a month before that. Mm. But then he officially went in. But they came in the, in the house, you know. AK-47s, everything else, and I'm like five, like, hello, it's 2 a.m. 
Really? Deadly? Oh, I'm looking at assault rifles, yeah. Um, but all through grade school, I didn't know anything but my schoolwork. And I was on the honor roll like a bunch of times in a row, and I was cool with it. And I, I, I guess I had a concept that, you know, dad was in a little bit of trouble. But, you know, you're six years old. You still, I'm playing with He-Man and G.I. Joe. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, there was still some money left. So Christmases didn't start to really get impacted until I was about eight or nine years old. Wow. And then it just got really different. And so then talk about from being a child now to becoming a teen in to, this experience. Okay, so being a teenager was tough. I, there's a large age gap between me and my older brothers. There is a, my closest brother in age is 14 years older than me. Oh my gosh. So wait, how many are you? How many? Oh, I'm in a clan of seven. I have two older brothers, two older sisters, and two younger sisters. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as a teenager, when I'm 13, my brother is... What, what did I just say, 20, 27? So, you know, he's, let's just face it, it's, it's 1993, he's in New York City chasing skirt, you know? So, and I, I think at the time when I was 13, we were, we were just evicted from the second apartment. No, mm -hmm. no, no, Junior. No, no, I was going to middle school in the Bronx and we, when the feds came and they seized the house, we were homeless for like a little while in limbo and then I was living in Northeast Bronx in the apartment. And my brother would just come by when he could, but he really wasn't there to be like, let me teach you like the birds and the bees. And then I'm fending for myself, walking past Eden Wall Projects, looking over my shoulder, having to run home, mm. you know, because you just don't have that. That's why I said, you know, I kind of needed dad. Yeah. But at the same time, mm -hmm. he's locked up. I'm not going to tell him like, yo, check it. Every day after school, there's like six or seven goons running down on everybody that comes out of the school. You know, I just found strategic ways of getting home. But you know, it's, it's the 90s was tough. You know, everybody was, crack was still around. Mm. So it was either you get it or be got, mm. you know? And then going into my teens, uh, I think we got evicted out of that apartment in 1990, the end of 93, so I know going, no, 94, I was in ninth grade. And it was like March and I missed like a whole month of school. Um, mom couldn't keep it together. Clearly, I mean, not her fault, it's just the system. This is all of the stuff that comes after the parent gets locked up. So the only thing you have is the welfare system and me and my two younger sisters. My older siblings, everybody just kind of dispersed, breaks the family down, right? They go with their boyfriends or their girlfriends or whatever, and my mom takes care of me and my younger sisters. So once we get uh, evicted out of that apartment, then we hit the New York City shelter system. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to remember the EAU, it was like all over the news and newspapers. It was like this emergency housing place that you would go like right behind Yankee Stadium. Really? And they're supposed to get you placement into a shelter in 24 hours. I slept on a chair for four days. How old were you at this time? I was 14. Wow. And sneakers that were a size too small. Mm. And I'm talking like people peeing on themselves. Just crazy. Crazy. And then we get transferred to another shelter in Queens and... You know, I'm forced to grow up early because my sisters are two years and five years younger. So now I'm nine, I'm 14, ninth grade, taking my sisters from Jamaica, Queens on the subway and learning how to ride the subway at 14, all the way from Jamaica, Queens to get them in Mount Vernon to school because my mother didn't really want us to change the school. So she tried her hardest and in hindsight, it's a hell of a mom right there because she don't want us to jump around. She wants us to keep our same friends because those little pieces are remaining normal or what you want to keep. And can, and can we just say, yeah. shout out to all the moms. Mommy. Yeah, man.
Thank you, Mom. Yeah. Thank you, Mom. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So going through my teens, I had to go through puberty, figuring out ladies um, on my own. But I had to fi figure out how to navigate those waters by myself because my older sisters or my younger sisters could teach. I had to really figure it out, which is why I'm so comfortable by myself. Like sometimes I'm rolling around, people are like, yo, let me come with you. And I'm like, no, I'm actually good, <laughs> you know, and I'm okay with that because I'm only responsible for myself. So, I want to you know. ask you, like, how how did you get to this space of, like, just being... I know you, but okay. I want the audience to know, what? like, you know, you are very... Right, you got like, a He's choice. a professional. You have like, a choice, right? You could take everything that happened to you and let that write your entire story, or you could write it. How many people we know go through the same things that I went through? Like, when I used to... I shared it with this girl in high school, she was like, I don't... I feel like I didn't know you this entire time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and that's cool. I was like, but I've made a decision to want better for myself. You know, I could have just as easily been standing on 170 in college, a block away from the shelter saying I'm gonna sell crack, but all you young people need to know, you like sneakers, you like food, you like that little girl that you're looking at, that little boy you're looking at, none of those things are available in jail. So what am I doing that for? You gotta want better for yourself. So that's really how I push through. So did he have a firm hand? Cause you know, we watched Imani and she said, you know, her father always parented her from prison, which like yeah, me and my dad, he's you, always parented me from prison, so. He did. Some of our disconnect didn't come until later. I got laid off from a job in um, 20, 2009. And I decided to become a professional photographer. And there was obviously, I couldn't go see him because I didn't have my car and all this stuff. And then I'm telling him what I'm doing. He's like, what are you, you know, why are you making these choices? And then I started to really butt head with being an adult. And I'm saying, you know, when you got locked up, Ronald Reagan was in office. Wow. We had four terms of Bushes. Okay. So since true. then. So true. You know what I'm saying? You don't know what's going on out here. So the decisions that I have to make, I have to make them. So it really wasn't until late, but he was a great parent all my life, you know. Did you we, visit him often? Often enough. Like, I would go once, once, sometimes twice a month, but, you know, going to see him, even now, it takes a whole day out of your life. Me and my uncle go at 5 o'clock in the morning on uh, weekends. Like, sometimes I go to Riverdale and I stay at my uncle's house because he likes to leave at 5 because we go there and then we try to leave early. Mm -hmm. And he knows that because that's the only way you salvage a day. If we get there at 8 o'clock and leave at 3, then you get stuck in that traffic. Well, it's that's the only time you can leave. The, the visit is only from 8 to 3, or right? 8.30 to 3. Yeah, but we try to leave at Before noon 30. if we can. Oh. So then we get back in New York around 3 or 4, and then there's a little bit of your day left. But if you got a weekend, you only got two days off, you just, you're losing a whole day. Yeah, it's true. You know, so it, it's even that part, and explaining that to him now, and he's like, yo, you want to come see me? I was like, it's not about that. I, I guess I could trade coming to see you this day for $150 in your commissary, and he gets quiet after that. <laughs> he you had know. a commissary. Yeah. He'll take the commissary and still be like, all right, try to make it up here so what you can. But I mean, Thank not, you for the money. Not, only, not only, you know, the, the trip emotionally or the time, mm. but also the cost. Like, you the know, cost. if the you don't have a crazy. car. Yeah, if, if you have no kind of, like, support financially, you got to rely on van services. You got to like ride with strangers. It's, it's all kinds of little strains and little things 
that mount on you. So I, I want to talk about about you know the the cost of actually visiting. Like you said, you go. Okay, you know, if, you I, if to I leave, if let's say I have my car, right off the rip, it's a tank of gas there, so it might be fifty bucks. Mm -hmm. Then you got to eat. And you got to eat. The, you got to make sure 50. they eat. Right. So it's like another fifty. This is bare bones. And then coming back, whatever toll cost, it's about one hundred fifty dollars at bare minimum to see him every time. If I'm going once a week, we looking at 600 a month, mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. right? And then, let's say he's not responsible and he doesn't have people helping him with his commissary and it was only on me, it's easily $1,000 a month to really support a parent the way you should. You know what I mean? I already know. So it's... That's a lot. This is these are the these are the things you don't hear because they'll be like, "Well, he did the crime. He should be in there." My dad's been in there for thirty-two years. He's sixty-nine years old. We we could let him out. I'm literally running for my father's life. I try not to think about, you know, him dying in prison, but that is a very very real reality. Absolutely. My mother's turning seventy-five in January. What if something happens to my mom, God forbid, and he doesn't get to see her again in the free world? And we lost my grandmother last year. Hmm. This is the stuff you don't hear about. You get a chance every day to rewrite your story. Every single day. Every single day. You can let it eat up at you, or you can find ways to let it fuel something. My choice is to do things that are creative. Some of us who have had these things happen to us, we, it's easy to cop out and be like, well, you don't, you don't know, you don't come from where I come from, and it's just like, okay, we'll move. You know, I was in the middle of Mount Vernon, like right next to the projects, almost all my life I was like two blocks away from all of it. Mm. But you make the conscious choice of I'm gonna walk right past and I'm gonna go to this job because I'm looking at these dudes out you, here. You know why I think that is though? I think because we actually visited somebody incarcerated. I think that when you have this experience and yeah. you're visiting this parent and you, they're talking to you, I think that that... I'm not sure though. But sometimes what'll happen is they'll look at the incarcerated uncle or whatever as a stripe. Oh, my uncle's G'd up or, you know, you know how easy it is for kids to say, well, my dad was this, so I have to be that. When you don't have to be that. Like, you gotta make the conscious decision. To you do that, you really have to make that conscious decision. And the crazy thing is, it only takes one bad choice. Because once you got that one felony strike, mm. it's a wrap. Like, I hate to say, you. You, you not, yes, it's not over, but now you're starting in a negative because it's hard for you to get a job. You either get nice with your hands and learn a trade, or let's just face it, the world will eat you alive, especially if you get the felony, do a little bit of time, and come out of jail, and all you know is thugging. Mm -hmm. You really got to make the conscious decision to say, I'm going to do something else. Well, I'm glad you made the conscious decision. Yeah, I, listen, I like nice dinners, nice clothes. So I'm, I just was never about making the bad decisions. And the one time that I did, and I just didn't know what kind of trouble I was going to get myself into, my dad dragged the hell out of me on that phone, and I never did anything else. That's right. Yeah. So why is it important to be a part of the We Got Us Now community? It's important because everybody's looking at it like the scarlet letter, and they need to be ashamed. And you don't have to be ashamed. Would you, who, who said this? I think Chris Rock said this. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I got a way that you can make some money and you could get out of the hood. It's the same way as if in Major League Baseball, 
somebody went to Mark McGuire and said, just take these steroids, you'll hit more home runs, you'll make more money than you ever could. <laughs> it's the same thing. Mm. You get an offer, and it's, you could choose to refuse it, or you could overlook the consequences and say, I'm going to just do this one little thing real fast and make this money. Then you find yourself 15 years later, you made a bunch of money, but you haven't stopped. But it all starts with, in our neighborhoods, the schools are defunded. We don't have conversations with our kids about credit, how money really works, mm -hmm. because these are not the things on our mind. When you're underpaid and you're looking for that, that next move, you sit the kid in front of the TV and give him cereal. You know what I'm saying? Life is very, very different in the hood. And the first thing that goes is the funding for the education and all the vocationals. You know, I, I live in Westchester County and I have friends in all of the different neighborhoods that surround Mount Vernon. Scarsdale doesn't have these problems. <laughs> Pelham doesn't have these problems. You could walk to Pelham. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But any parts of town where there's like brown people, there's always something wrong with the funding. That ain't an accident. We got us now for me is a pause button to tell a narrative of some stories that have not been told. Pete Monsanto Jr. completed the New York City Marathon on November 4th, 2018. His courage to run has not only healed him and reinvigorated the loving bond between him, his father, and his family, but it has also turned into an inspirational documentary, Run For His Life, featured on GQ Sports. Pete's decision to run for his life has also roused the gift of freedom. I am so happy to share with the We Got Us Now community that on February 2nd, 2021, Mr. Pete Monsanto Sr. was granted a compassionate release after 34 years in federal prison. Welcome home. To learn more, to join, to donate, go to wegotusnow.org.